Thank you for allowing us to be with you today. Um, As Pastor Dave said, my wife and I have the privilege of working with the Jesus Film, so I thought it would be appropriate to to watch the the Jesus Film version of this, which is actually, you see a little bit of differences than the text, because it's from the Gospel of Luke, and the author of Luke treats it a little bit differently. But there's some really um, key things that I think God would have us to learn from this passage. And so I just want to share with you a few things that God's been teaching uh, me over the last few months and years as as I continue in this journey with you, alongside you, of of growing in my faith and growing in my trust of Jesus. And so um, let's look at this passage and let's see what God would have for us today. Um, As Pastor Dave said, I work with the Jesus Fund Project, and and, uh, that just kind of comes inherent with travel. Because the, the places in the world where we tend to be going are some of the remote, most remote places of the world. And frankly, that tends to be an area that brings me great confidence and comfort because it's something that I know and that I've done. And uh, since I have had the privilege of traveling, sometimes um, I enter into it a little more confidently than I should. And um, I remember a few years ago, I was taking a team of 15 to a really remote place in uh, northern Mozambique, which is in southern Africa. And uh, we were uh, from all over the U.S., and we were traveling from every coast and every place, it seemed like, and and we were meeting in Johannesburg and then flying from Johannesburg to Malawi, which was actually the closest airport to the location we were going in Mozambique. There were no airports within a 20-hour drive of where we were going. 20-hour drive of where we were going. Um, so it was actually the airport we were traveling to was over the border in Malawi, and then we were going to cross over. And uh, um, this one particular situation really frazzled me. Um, as, we were, as we were going along, I started getting some text messages and things from various people that they'd misconnected or their, their flights were late. And uh, there was only one person that arrived in Johannesburg on time, 14 of us, including me, uh, arrived late. And... The worst thing about it was that not a single bag that our team had packed arrived. And I I forgot to mention that we were camping in rural Mozambique. So our tents, our supplies, our ministry supplies, our film showing equipment for the Jesus, everything was missing. And after waiting for it for two days in Malawi, we realized we, we had to go because it may never come and we knew that once we crossed that border because of international customs uh, relationships, we were not going to see any of our items. And so thus began our two-week mission trip in Mozambique without tents, without clothes, without any kind of supplies, and yet God showed up and did some amazing things. Um, And I think it left me with this this paramount feeling of absolute lack of control. (laughs) And, uh, And it was such a great opportunity for me to trust God. And I don't know how you are, but I find that when, um, when the storms of life start to pile up in, in my life, when I'm faced with circumstances like that, when I'm faced with other difficult circumstances that are um, out of my control, I, I often find that I lack faith or, lack, or I have fear as I, uh, as I enter into it because I lack faith in Jesus, really, if I'm, if I'm honest. So think back um, in your own life to a time when you felt completely out of control. Just you, you just, you cannot do anything about the circumstance. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe a dear friend of yours announced that they, you know, they have a severe illness. 
Maybe you were betrayed by someone close to you. Um, whatever the situation when you, that you're thinking about, when, when you face a situation like that, um, do you, like me, do you tend to, to have a little bit of fear or a little bit of anxiety? Or is your, is your first reaction, I can trust Jesus? Um, well, I think when I have situations like that, and when I'm put in situations like the one that I just described, they, they really do expose my fear or my lack of faith. And I, and I think that's a, a general principle that we can bring into the Christian life, that when I lack or when we lack faith in Jesus, we're really not experiencing the fact that, that Jesus has divine authority over everything, everything in our lives. So today, as we look at, at this passage in Mark, we're going we're gonna to enter into three things that I think would, that God would have to teach us from this story. Because he has defined authority, I think we can trust him. We can take comfort in knowing that he uses hardship to develop our faith and that we can have confidence in his sovereignty and in his power. So as Pastor Dave said, um, and you've been in this for the last few weeks and you'll continue in this series on practical spirituality, um, I think this is just one more area that God would have us to put into to into perspective. So we're going to look um, a little more in detail at this passage that was read in, in the film clip that we just looked at in Mark 4, 35 through 41. And so turn with me there, and I'll just share a few thoughts that I think God would have for us. Um, back to the book of Mark, the, the author doesn't identify him specifically in the book of Mark. Most scholars would agree that it was written by John Mark. He was the, the interpreter um, and the assistant to the apostle Peter. Um, Evidence points to it being written within probably 30, 35 years of Jesus' death and crucifixion and resurrection. Um, so about 30 years after the story that's recorded took place. And that's significant because it would, would have been within the lifetime of the people who would have actually been eyewitnesses of this. Um, Emperor Nero of the Roman Empire, which was in control of everything at that time in the area, um, had just initiated, inaugurated this huge persecution among Christians. He was trying to root them out. And I think that that serves as an important setting for what was going on while Mark is writing this down. And I, and I think that that seems to imply that, the, that one of the purposes in, in Mark's writing this was to give Christians who were being persecuted for their faith confidence and trust that in the midst of tumultuous circumstances that God is in control and that he'll be with them through their suffering. And so um, Mark 4, the passage that we read, comes at um, the end of a chapter where Jesus has been teaching a very large crowd for most of the day. Look, um, if you're in Mark 4, look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Jesus began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered around him so that he got into a boat and he sat it out on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and in his teaching he said to them and then he goes on and, and teaches. And so previous to this passage, he's, he's uh, taught four parables, he's performed four miracles of different sorts and then he enters into the passage that we read. And in verse 35 and 36, um, here Jesus leaves the crowd And Mark records in verse 36 that the disciples took him along just as he was in the boat. And 
that probably reflects the fact that they departed directly to the other side of Galilee while he was in the boat. He didn't actually get out of the boat. They just went from where he was, and, and they just went to the other side. Notice in verse 35 that it's Jesus is the one who initiated their sailing to the other side of Galilee. It's he that says, let us go across. So Jesus initiated this whole thing. And so from that, we know that, of course, Jesus was always in control of the circumstance. We have the the perspective, of course, of the gospel writer as we look at this passage. But it's probably not far-fetched to think that if Jesus proposed that they do this, that it would actually take place, right? Let's go to the other side. Well, they're probably going to get there. And yet, he sets them up to show who he is and that they can trust him. Then look later in um, verse 37 and 38. Um, He says, A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in this stern, asleep on a cushion. So it had probably service help here to to talk a little bit about the environment in which this took place. Um, The boat that they were in, um, you saw in the film clip, it's a little different than, than what you think if you go out to Sailorville Reservoir and you know, get in a boat. Um, probably a 15-passenger wooden boat, uh, probably not more than that. Certainly without modern navigational aids. They didn't have compasses or even radios or sonar or anything like that. And the, the Sea of Galilee is interesting. I don't know if some of you have had the, the privilege of traveling to the Holy Land, but if you have, it's not that big. You can see across it. It's actually technically a lake because it's completely surrounded by land. Um, It's in the north of the modern state of Israel, and it's about 30 miles south of Mount Hermon, which is over the border in Syria, um, near the edge of the Golan Heights. There's actually one of those. I've got a photo of it in here. Um, Let's see, go to, oh, I I forgot to share those. Okay, keep going. A little more. This was, that was my Mozambique experience I was going to share. So anyway, that was, yeah, that was Mozambique. Um, keep going, keep going. One more. There's a, that. Okay, there's Sea of Galilee. So you can see across, that's actually Tiberius um, on the lake, and we're out in a, a little tiny boat. But you can see, we're looking north, and you can see um, the edge of the mountain that we're talking about there. And so it's, um, it's this, this crazy small lake, but that is actually below sea level. So it's almost 700 feet below sea level, and because of the the difference between Mount Hermon and that, it's just known, even to this day, of having these really violent storms. And so um, when it says in verse 37 that a great windstorm arose, imagine the scene here, you know. Um, The wind and the storm are kicking up the waves, you know, what we saw in the film, water's crashing into the boat. And don't forget that these were experienced fishermen. They'd been through some storms before, most likely. Jesus falls asleep, probably out of exhaustion in verse 38, um, but he also knew what was going to happen. So isn't it interesting that in this passage, Jesus' falling asleep kind of heightens the drama, as Mark tells it, the contrast of Jesus sleeping and this this storm going on. And I I think that Mark is setting up for us here a, a significant contrast between the disciples' fear and Jesus' calm assurance of God's control in the situation. Look at the the second half of verse 38. Um, They woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do do you not care that we're perishing? 
And it's, it's Jesus that sets up this opportunity to trust him. I think we can probably safely infer that the purpose of this miracle is actually for the disciples, if nothing else. Certainly for us, by extension, as we hear the story, but for the disciples. Interestingly, like I mentioned, Jesus chooses to operate in their sphere of expertise. Don't miss that. Um, They are accomplished fishermen. Um, As many as seven of them, scholars tell us, were probably had a fishing background or were probably professional fishermen. So it's, it's also safe to assume, I think, that they're probably pretty good at navigating the sea. And they're, they approach him almost as if to say, Jesus, do your part. Get a bucket. Help us bail water or something like that. I don't know quite what they were thinking, but I don't think they expected what he did. They don't seem to interpret his sleep as evidence of his trust in God. Um, and, and several commentators in this passage have act, actually suggested that they, they probably had in the back of their mind as, as Jews who knew the Old Testament scriptures, the story of Jonah. Uh, I don't know if you recall Jonah's story, but Jonah goes out in a boat, um, and he's fleeing from God. He's supposed to, to, he rebels against God, and he goes to Tarshish instead of uh, the Assyrian city of Nineveh. God sends a storm out to sea, and their ship is in danger of crashing. Um, and Jonah has them hurl him into the sea. I think they've got to have had that in the background of the situation. Um, the storm that Jonah encountered had been sent out of punishment for his disobedience. And, and I think they're probably noting in contrast to that, wait a second, Jesus, we've just obeyed you. We've just gone with you. You've said to go to the other side of the sea. We've just listened to you. Wait, we're not like Jonah. What's this storm all about? Why is, why is this storm happening? And if so, it's probably that they, if that's how they felt, then they might have also felt agitated at his lack of concern or even justified in, in their self-righteousness. You know, well, we've been obedient. We haven't done anything wrong. Why, why are we getting this situation? And then look in verse 39. And Jesus awoke. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. Like that. Rebuked in, in the Greek... Um, means like severely ordered or corrected, like in control. It's the same word that's used when Jesus rebukes the evil spirits or when he corrects Peter or when he chastises the Pharisees. It's a really strong word that indicates his authority over whatever the situation that that he's rebuking. So imagine how the disciples are feeling now. You kind of saw it in the film clip. You kind of see the reaction, just kind of stunned awe. But they wake, they ask Jesus to help, maybe thinking that he's going to bail water, and he, he just blows their categories by, by, Mark indicates, speaking three simple words, peace, be still. And Mark records that the wind ceased, and there was great calm. Imagine how they're feeling. And then look in verse 40. He says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? So Jesus immediately challenges their faith. He gets right to the core of the issue because he knows their hearts. The only thing that Mark records that Jesus says to his disciples after he calms the storm is, is not, um, whew, that's over. Good thing I was here. He says, wait, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So I don't think Jesus is implying that they have no faith at all. I think that he's disappointed that their faith hasn't been developed more by this point. They've been following him around. Even in this passage, they've just seen him do miracles. They've seen him teach from the word of God. Um, 
They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him heal sick people. They saw him heal a man with a withered hand. And now he just calmed the storm through his words. So now they think they're getting some idea of who he is. And I think Jesus is expecting them to exhibit some more faith at this point. Go on and look at the the last verse that, that Pastor Day read for us. Verse 41 says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him. Ironically, the, the terror that's exhibited at the, at the beginning of this scene by the storm seems to be even more eclipsed by the terror in their eyes as they, they look at this person that just calmed the storm. Who is this? I, I think as good Jews who knew the Old Testament scriptures, went to synagogue, heard the scriptures, they've got to be thinking of things like this. Psalm 89 attributes the raging sea, to, to God. It says in verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging sea. When its waters rise, you still them. So as fishermen who were also Jewish, they would have known this psalm, and they probably would have used it even in their prayers to God as they went out to fish on the sea. God is the one that controls the sea. So as as Mark writes this book, certainly he would have been familiar with it, and he would have caught almost the irony taking place here. So ultimately, I think the disciples realized by their reaction that God was doing something here, that Jesus was doing something that only God does in stilling the sea. The knowledge of the fact that that God rules over the sea had to have some incredible bearing on on what they're thinking. They have to be thinking wait, is this somehow God in the boat with us? Wait, 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 this just blows my categories. So there's Mark 4. Now, what what does God have for us as we look at that? Why did Mark put this in there? Why does he want us to study this? Remember, so persecution happening, Nero's persecuting Christians. Christians are reading this. Christians have read this down through the centuries. There's a reason this was in there. What what would God have us to, to learn from this? And I, and I think it really falls into this area. God, even, though God, even though Jesus isn't physically present with us today, as he was in this scene in the disciples, he hasn't changed, and he's with us through his Holy Spirit, his indwelling spirit. Listen to what he says in, in John 16. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, he says. And Jesus says that it's to our advantage that he goes away. When Jesus was physically present on earth, he interacted, he demonstrated his sovereignty, his authority about who he was. Um, He showed that he was the anointed one, the the Messiah. And yet, um, as I mentioned before, here I think God has for us three sort of interrelated lessons that I think we can learn that are true for the disciples in the Sea of Galilee and are certainly true for me, and, and I think they're true for us today. And the first one, as I alluded to, if you're following along in your notes and you haven't already captured them, the first one is just, because Jesus has defined authority, we can trust him. Look at, look at verse 40 again in that passage. The only thing that Jesus says to his disciples after he calms the storm is, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? Jesus says nothing else than to single out the disciples' lack of faith. And I, and I think Mark recorded this story this way. 
um, by showing Jesus' power and authority over the storm, just to, to show us, as we discussed, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's God. He's come to earth to save his people. And as such, um, I think by extension, he wants to develop our trust in him in the same way. Can, can you relate to the disciples' fear when you're placed in a situation that you can't control or that you don't know how the outcome is going to be? I, I certainly can. Uh, I've known Jesus for a long time, and yet, as I read through this passage, it says the same thing to me that he seems to be saying to the disciples. Marcus, why are you so afraid? Have you no fear? If I'm honest, I have to ask myself, how have I seen my faith developed in the last 20, 30 years? Why am I, why am I lacking trust? Am I growing in my trust? Or am I still tempted to be self-reliant, especially in areas where I feel competent? So how has your faith grown as you've walked with Jesus over the last year, two years, three years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? And that leads us, I think, to the second point, if you're following along in your notes. Because Jesus has divine authority, we can take comfort knowing that he uses hardship to develop our faith. And, and the key here is that Jesus provides opportunities every day, every week for us to trust him, especially in areas, like I said, where we're tempted to feel self-reliant. Sometimes those are the ones that he has to root out the greatest in my life are the areas where I feel competent or I feel like I don't need to trust him because I've got that. It's true that Mark was actually, if it's true that Mark was actually writing this to the church in Rome and they were suffering persecution like like it seems to indicate, then how might the church have received this after they started reading it? I, I really think it's the same idea that we see in the book of James. James 1, 2, and 3, um, James records, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect and complete. So uh, how do we respond to all this? Um, regardless of the time or situation when we face hardship, I think we have to ask ourselves, how is God at work in the midst of this? Am I considering how God is going to use this in my life and the life of others? And why would that perspective be so important? Why would Mark have wanted his readers to, to know this and understand this? How would that change my perspective or our perspective? Well, I think the story should serve to show us and assure us of God's control in every circumstance. And it should cause us pause when we face hardship because we have to be thinking, how will this strengthen my faith? How will God use this to strengthen my faith? So the challenges for me as I've looked at this is when I face a situation that's hard, I almost want my automatic response to to learn to be to trust God. Oh, God, you've put this in my life so that I can learn to trust you more. What would hurt to have that perspective? It would certainly draw us closer to him, which I think is why Mark is recording this. When um, you guys know, I I grew up in this church, and um, when I was a college student, I was uh, in finals one semester, and um, I got a phone call from my dad, and that was kind of interesting because my dad never really called unless something he needed something or something was wrong usually you've spent too much money but but, um he was really choked up on this particular phone call and i could tell something was wrong dad got emotional occasionally but um boy something was wrong if he did it on a phone call and um 
he was having a, a hard time getting out his words. And between, you know, sobs and chokes and whatever else and pauses, I heard uh, the words mom, cancer, emergency, surgery. And, uh, and he regained his composure, and he says, this is a classic dad thing to say, well, please don't worry. Just work on your studies and do your finals. And, um, oh, my dad. And that, you know, quickly went in one ear and out the other, and, and I found myself here back in Des Moines. And, um, but mom's treatment was so brutal. Um, some of you remember. Um, and I remember they had to do this exploratory surgery, and um, I don't remember much about it, but I remember hearing her cry in pain as they were doing the surgery from the waiting room. It was that loud. And they were trying to figure out how far the cancer had spread. And I remember sitting in that waiting room and just feeling absolutely helpless and out of control. And yet at the same time, um, for one of the first times in my life, I really remember God pursuing me. And and is as if he said, Marcus, will you trust me with your mom's life? And, and so it, it led to this crying out to God like I've never cried out before. Um, and it, it ended up being a long road to recovery, and he ultimately healed her from that cancer. But, a, but apart from that, he did something incredible in my life. He pursued me to a place where I could trust him in any circumstance, and even when there was a lot at stake. So uh, how do you respond when you're faced with difficulties? Does it grow your trust in Jesus? Is it growing your trust in Jesus? Which, if you're following along, brings us to our third point, that because Jesus has divine authority, we can have confidence in his sovereignty and power. Um, Read 41 with me again. They were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So, we saw in the, the film clip, we've seen in the passage, we already noted how the disciples' terror at what God has done here seems to eclipse their initial fear of the storm because they realize that God is God, or that Jesus is God, and that he's completely in control. So I think some, some application for that in our life is that, one, we need to realize that God is big enough to have, handle every situation in our life, even the ones in which we feel competent on our own to handle. Regardless of the time or situation, when, when I face hardship, I often react in a couple of ways. My first instinct, I don't know if you're like this, my first instinct is to try to manage it. Okay, just manage it. Get in, get in crisis mode, bury your head down, figure it out, do it yourself. And, and note that the disciples kind of do this too. Jesus tests them in their area of expertise, and you know they should know what to do, and yet he puts them in a situation where they have to trust him. And once that fails, once the, the managing myself fails then my second instinct is usually to uh, accuse God of being indifferent to my suffering. God, you don't care. And and the disciples do that too. I'm kind of encouraged here because I I see myself in them. They say in verse 38, Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? So why does Mark put this in here? Well, I think he wants us to understand that 41 is true. Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. For, For the reader of the book of Mark, the answer is that this is the Christ, the Son of God. And it's very clear here that Jesus is the all-powerful God. So how do you and I react? Do you and I see God as the one that can most meet our needs? Or if you're honest, is your reaction like mine tends to be of trying to manage it myself? 
Can I trust him? Can I trust him more than I trust myself? That's a question I, I have to constantly ask myself. So think about this. How, how has God showed his power in your life? Where are the, the benchmarks that you can look back to of trusting God, like the cancer with my mom in your life? How has God worked? How has he shown his power in your life? Jesus hasn't changed, not one bit. The same Jesus that calmed the storm there is the same Jesus to whom we trust and we pray. Every worship song Austin just led us through. We're praising the same God that's able to do something about it. So, in closing, uh, I hope that this pushes you like it does me, challenges me in, in my trust of God. Because Jesus is divinely sovereign over all things, we can trust him unequivocally as we face circumstances beyond our control. Where, where do you need to trust God in your life right now? What's going on in your world? Where do you have opportunity to trust him? And will you do that? Just as, as he did with his disciples in the boat, Jesus wants us to recognize his divine power and to grow in our trust of him. If you believe that Jesus is the sovereign God who is always in control, then believe that he's strong enough to meet any trial that's set before us. I, I, I hear all the time, you know, different people say things, and, and Christians, even in wanting to be well-meaning, will say, well, God won't give me more than I can handle. And I, I kind of pause when I hear that, and, and I, you've probably heard it in the halls around here, because it sounds really good, but when you think about it, the truth is that God won't give us more than he can handle. So don't be afraid. At every moment of your life, but especially in the hardest times, Jesus wants us to move from fear and self-dependence to learn to trust him more fully. May you, may I, may we corporately do that. Jesus, thanks. Thanks for this scene in Mark and how you push us and push us and push us into circumstances that force us no choice but to trust in you. And so, Jesus, when I'm faced, when we're faced with situations that we can't manage ourselves, before that, in all circumstances, help our first reaction to be, I can trust my God, and he is the sovereign one who can do everything about it and has this in his control. Help us to grow and lead others in that. In your name, amen.